Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today on the Rock and Roll Porter podcast. This is your host, Beth Massa. And today, I am very, very excited to talk to Rebecca Braswell. Rebecca is the CEO of Land Life Company. And I'm going to do something I have never done before because it's a rather dry and uninteresting thing to do, except for in the case of Rebecca, I am going to read verbatim off of her LinkedIn profile. (laughs) (laughs) Because this was basically the starting point for the myriad questions that I have to ask her. Um, So here we go. Rebecca is an innovative and strategic leader with a holistic approach toward nature restoration as founding member and CEO of Land Life Company. She works with international corporations, local and national governments, nonprofits, and foundations to develop large-scale technology-driven reforestation projects that help mitigate climate change and restore vital ecosystems. Prior to joining Land Life, Rebecca was an associate partner with Monitor Group, and worked on issues of economic development and food security across Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Rwanda, and Ghana. She holds a BA from Brown University and an MA from Oxford. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Beth. <laughs> okay, let's start out as we always start out. Please tell me why you and I are talking today. Um, you and I met a couple of years ago um, when we were both building kind of new and different businesses, and um, it was just really great to to connect on kind of disruptive ideas. And then we reconnected again a couple of months ago um, as we were uh, raising funds for our projects uh, in Australia, North America, and Iberia. That's right. I was very excited to see that Land Life had a this up and coming CEO who was naturally was a woman and a very brilliant one at that. Um, now, tell me this: What do you come from? What do I come from? Um, I think, like all people, I come from a mix of a mix of things. I would say, if I could be short about it, I come from a. Um, Midwestern farming family and a, uh, yeah, East Coast government service family um, of Russian origin in the U.S. Hmm. Okay. And where in the Midwest, okay, where in the Midwest um, are you from? Were you born, where were you born and raised? I was born in Michigan, but um, my father's family is from Southern Illinois, which is where our uh, farm is. Uh, and it's a fifth generation family farm. I was the first generation to not live or work on the farm, like a lot of, uh, like a lot of farming families and, and people in my generation. Um, but it's, an, it's a really interesting origin point for me and my family in terms of values and um, understanding where you, uh, where you come from. And I guess in my field, how you look at land and stewardship of, of, of that land. Where in Michigan were you born? Lansing. I was born in Ann Arbor. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. My blood runs maize and blue, even though I did not go to the University of Michigan, something my father has never forgiven me for. Yeah, okay. My father is in grad school at Michigan State. 
there and my mother was an undergraduate at Michigan State. You know, yeah. there's always something about Midwesterners. We can we can sniff each other out in in the you know line waiting to get into the movies. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So this farm in 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 Illinois. What um. What type of farm is it? Was it? Um, yeah. Crops that mid- were raised. Yeah, it's crops, but it's also um. Uh, we also have cattle, and they are all um. Yeah, we made a big switch. I want to say like 20 years ago. So probably before this became very in vogue in restaurants to kind of um, grass fed, hormone free um, beef. So we do grains and uh, grains and cattle. Okay. And um, what made the family decide that this was the way that they wanted to go raising this cattle again before it was, you know, trendy or something that was necessarily sought after? I really, I really credit my father for this. He, um, he really focused he was a civil engineer because back in the um back in the 60s when you wanted to get into the environment um that was kind of your pathway was to become a a civil engineer and he focused on water systems and so he's always been really focused on the environment and what's healthy for it and um you know before sustainability was a was a buzzword you know how do you keep a a farm going through multiple generations and this seemed like a, a healthier and more sustainable way to to raise cattle it was a big um, debate, to be honest, with my great uncle at the time. Um, you know, changes on farms happen between generations, right? And I think uh, my dad had also proposed the idea of cultivating like organic mushrooms on the farm. That was received with a very big no. <laughs> so somehow improving our cattle business to become uh, more sustainable was more palatable to my great uncle than, um, you know, do, doing something super East Coasty like, you know, organic mushrooms. Okay, we're going to stop, start, we're going to pull this way back, because this is really interesting. So first of all, fifth generation. So yeah. your family grew up, this it grew the same time as, as the, the United States of America did. Yes, my family um, follows the two um, migration paths to the US almost to a T. Uh, so we come from Germany on the farming side. Uh, back in the, uh, sometime between 1820 and 1840, um, came over as German farmers uh, migrated to the Midwest, set up a a flour mill and a farm, um, and were kind of some of the first first farmers out there. And then my mom's side of the family, which is the Russian side, came over right after or during the Russian Revolution, so 1917, and migrated to the East Coast, worked in factories um, and then led to kind of uh, government uh, government careers in, in the Navy. Um, so yes, I can definitely trace my origins to two very distinct migration patterns uh, to the US. How did your mom and dad meet? Um, they met in, uh, my mom was an undergrad and my dad, uh, they were both in school and my aunt was a year younger than my mom at Duke University. And so my dad was visiting her and um, my mother said, oh, who's Braswell's new boyfriend? And they're like, oh, that's not her boyfriend. That's her brother. And they had a dance coming up where you had to ask a stranger. So she had her roommate ask my father because she was too nervous. Um, So my dad thought he was going on a date with a different woman. (laughs) And um, yeah, that was their first date. It was a a, like ask a stranger to a dance uh, date. And I think they told me their their first question my mom asked my dad was, how long does it take to boil an egg? She was in charge of bringing deviled eggs to the party. 
Oh, because she didn't know or because she was testing him? No, she really didn't know. Like, oh, it's very sweet. clear where the cook in the family comes from. <laughs> it's not my mom. So that they just, they, 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 they just start uh, continuing to date each other after that? Or yeah, was there? Oh, did. wow. They oh, did. my and goodness. And I went from there. And then my mom um, moved to Michigan where my dad had then gotten a job because he was a couple years older. Um, and that's where my brother and I were born. And then we eventually moved to the East Coast where my mom was from. And and that's where uh, my brother and I grew up in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. Okay. Okay. Um, so let, let's, let's fill in a few gaps here. Your mother sure. went to Duke. Yeah. So pretty smart woman. Yes. And what did she study there? What was her Um, name? she studied political science and, um, then went to, I think she considered being a, a teacher. Uh, that was definitely one course of, uh, career for her, but she ended up going to law school and had me during law school in her third year. Um, she went to night school uh, to, to get her legal degree, degree, and she ended up having a career as an assistant U.S. attorney um, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. Okay, so talk me through. First of all, I need to get your mother on this podcast. Um, yeah, she's amazing. You yeah, <laughs> let's do a part two. Um, right, so mom and dad meet and fall in love. Yep. Um, first, they moved to Michigan for his job. Yep. But then did you move to the East Coast for her job or what? what's the story? No, so this is funny. Then they had two young kids. Right. And then they're, um, you know, 12 hour drives to both families. Right. So my dad's family in southern Illinois um, and to my mom's family on the East Coast. And they just they wanted to move uh, to one uh, to one side of the family or another. And my mom, I think, really wanted to head back to the East Coast. And she was still just finishing. She was clerking for a judge. Um, so that was something she could do in a different place or she, she was ready to change jobs. But um, th she decided to help my dad apply for jobs. So she posed as his secretary and was calling engineering firms in the DC area, trying to find out, you know, this is pre-internet, like how do you find a job, right? Especially in a, a different part of the country. And she would write letters because she, was, she wasn't convinced it would happen fast enough. It was left just to my dad. And uh, yeah, he got some interviews. He went out to D.C. Um, and got a job in, a, in an engineering firm in uh, Maryland. And then we uh, moved out as a family. And she started working at the Department of Justice. Um, and she was there for a few years before she moved over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I love anyone who feels like it's a shortcut that's stopping just sort of short of cheating Yeah, <laughs> to be like, let's get this done. You know, yeah, exactly. I, let's just role play. It doesn't make any difference. I have to admit I've done that a few times in my life too. So yeah, she's wow. I bet that that's probably one of dozens of stories that you could tell me about, yeah. uh, about her. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cool. Um, okay. So you mentioned that there was a debate between, I think, your father and your great uncle, who would have been your grandfather's brother. My grandmother's brother, yep. Your grandmother's brother. So where's the grandfather at this time? Um, my grandfather's out there too, but the farm came through my grandmother's family. Okay, so there must have been something and still intrinsic in your dad where he was the one bringing up the conversation at all because traditionally yes. it's like, well, what fertilizer is going to, you know, yield the highest. Yep. Yeah. So what was it in him intrinsically? That you know, that's a really he... good question for him. I mm. think it's always been, um, 
it's just always been a passion of his. He worked on the farm when he was a kid, so he saw how things were done. But then, you know, he went and um, he got engineering degrees uh, to focus on more structural issues. And I think, you know, you're working with water systems, you're working with natural resources, and you kind of have this family heritage and preserving natural resources for the next generation. And I think, you know, he saw how much strain the size of the herd that we had was putting on the farm and how much you have to feed them, um, you know, in terms of, and you're feeding them things that to be honest are, are really just designed to make them fat, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you feed cows corn, it's um, designed to create a certain taste that we have all become used to. And it's just not a very sustainable um, approach. Uh, again, before that became a, a word, it's expensive, it's costly. You have to um, constantly be uh, giving these cows uh, hormones so that they grow. It, it's not natural. And I think that he saw that. He thought this is not a very natural uh, process. And um, he tried to convince my uncle that he could get a premium for the cows if they were produced in a more um, hormone-free, uh, grass-fed way. And, um, you know, to be honest, having a farm in Southern Illinois, it's you're far away again from those restaurants in New York that will pay a premium for it. So it was definitely an uphill battle because you reduce the size of your herd. Um, you do reduce your cost of inputs, right? They're now just eating off the land. Um, they're eating what's available. You're not giving them the medicines anymore that other farms use. Um, but it, it took a while for the for the meat to command a, a premium in the market because uh, we as consumer, consumers just didn't value it. Um, so we took a big risk and I think it uh, broke even for a while, uh, probably lost money initially, then broke even for a long time and is, and is now starting to be recognized as... Um, pretty forward thinking and and have a value to it. So both of your parents have a spark of visionary in them, entrepreneurial spirit in them. Um, to Is that a, a correct assessment? Yeah, I think my, um, my dad, like, it's, it comes funnily enough, it comes from his his mother, who was, um, you know, had she oddly enough been a man would have probably managed the farm or been a businessman. Um, but instead, you know, it went to her brother um, because uh, who was younger than her uh, because he was the, the man in the family. So that kind of business acumen, vision, looking forward piece, my dad inherited from my grandmother, even though she wasn't, you know, the active manager of the, uh, of the farm, but she was really good with numbers, um, really good with business ideas. And then I think my mom comes from that kind of um, more of that immigrant story of where you come, you come from nothing and you're, you're self-made in the, uh, in the U S I mean, my grandfather, I can literally see when he signed in on the uh, uh, statue of Liberty, uh, his family came in through that way. And he ended up being the first Russian born graduate of the Naval Academy. And so she was the first um, female college graduate, let alone law school graduate in her family. Um, so for her, this was also a way to embody the public um, service spirit of her family, um, but in her own way um, and in a way that there weren't a lot of female lawyers at the, at the time. Um, so yeah, they're both trailblazers in their own way. They both pick that up from their parents um, in their own way. Um, it's nice to kind of think about these threads where each generation just makes it their own, but you can, you can trace it back. I've been thinking a lot about 
mothers of incredibly successful people as its own form of entrepreneur. And I have to say, it it's kind of, I feel kind of a sock in the gut a little bit to hear about this incredible grandmother of yours that, uh, you know, relinquished her potential to her brother because of her gender. Is this something that's ever, you've ever thought about or ruminated about or? You know, I think it's a really, so my grandmother also went to Wellesley and so she was college educated, even though she was never going to have a job. Um, She, you know, she was on the PTA. She did a lot of service jobs that required, you know, thinking and effort and work, but they weren't, you know, compensated. So her family invested in her and her education, even though she wasn't ultimately expected to do very much with it, which is, you know, a conversation I really wish I had had with her, like, well, then why did they do that? Why, why did they send you from a farm to an East Coast elite school, hoping that you would learn and then expect you not to do anything with it? Um, and there was no resentment there. I think vis-a-vis the farm, but there definitely was resentment vis-a-vis being expected to be a homemaker. Um, And uh, I think that that was really frustrating with her. Um, And I think she found it hard when my grandfather died because that kind of community of that intellectual community that she had access to vis-a-vis my grandfather, you know, kind of was then shut off to her um, as a, as a widow, as a, um, it's just the, she never classified it as gender, but there was a there was a lot of frustration there. And I think she probably didn't have the language and the frameworks we have today to realize 100% what was going on. But she, she was extremely smart and um, hated cooking and hated being expected to have a tidy household and, um, and things like that. That's why my dad is a fabulous cook, because really my grandmother, she, she, she hated any form of, of taking care of a home. She had four great children, but that was not, you know, the extent of her heart's desire. Yes. Out of necessity. Um, do you, so do you think that she, I just, again, find it that these recurring themes of these women of previous generations, um, having um I don't want to use the word oppressed but being fenced in or boxed in or cornered in by the circumstance of the era in which they were born results in this resentment intellectual boredom um looking outward uh um displaced anger uh or that, or that, or that, you know, I could very see, I could very easily imagine a situation where your dad's mother had the reputation of being eccentric or something without anybody really actually understanding what was going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely pushed the boundaries. And like I said, put, took on pretty significant social roles uh, on the school board and things like that. Um, because uh, those were acceptable roles and positions uh, for a, uh, for a woman, even though they, they weren't compensated. Um, and, uh, yeah, she, she's someone who like always had a twinkle in her eye and who asked you good questions and, um, made sure that, uh, she invested in my brother and my cousins and my education as well. That was really kind of her, her way of paying it forward because she didn't talk so much about the gender and the opportunities that weren't available to her, but she wanted to make sure that, you know, um, we had the education because she saw that we were able to potentially have more opportunities uh, than, than she had. And she really made a, 
a great contribution to my life in that way. So you, she, she, you knew your grandmother well. You had, you got to see her a lot, and yeah, she was, um, she was alive until she was uh, ninety four. Um, so I was really, uh, really lucky, and I was the eldest, uh, the eldest uh, grandchild. But you know, distance was hard. They're also midwest. You'll know, understand this. They're midwestern folks, right? So they didn't travel a lot. They didn't come to the east coast uh, a lot. So I wish I had seen her more. Um, but you know, that it's a very simple lifestyle. And I think that that helped with some of the frustrations, like the expectations weren't drastically different and she didn't have peers who were doing drastically different things. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it, life, she, she had a happy life, even though she could have done, um, d- done different things with it. If those opportunities had been available to her, like, yes, she I- made some great investments. I think she, she invested in IBM stocks or something like crazy like that. I mean, she just, but again, not because she had a purpose, not because she was expected to, she just really enjoyed business. She enjoyed reading about it. Um, this is what she did with her income from the farm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You said she invested in your education. Was she, how did she do that? So she paid for, I would say, a third to almost half of my. Oh, she literally education. invested in your education. Yeah, literally oh, okay. invested in my education. <laughs> hmm. um, okay, great. Yeah. I was wondering if she was like the grandmother looking over your shoulder, wondering why that A minus wasn't an A sort of thing. Oh. No, no, mm-hmm. I was. Um, I I fortunately never needed someone to do that because I think <laughs> I had that expectation. I was very, I more had the mother bursting into my room at midnight being like, what are you doing? And it's like, I'm over a history book, you know, <laughs> as if she caught me doing drugs. It's like, that was the, that was the voice. Like, how could you be up so late? And uh, really, I was just studying. Were you really um, studying or did you have, yeah, you know, no. 17 magazine in between? Cause that's what, that would have been me. <laughs> like, no, I, I was a, with a 17 very magazine hiding in it. Um, yeah, I mean, my, I, I was sent to private school in DC in the eighties cause the school system was really, uh, was really rough. And my parents thought that that was, uh, that was really worth the investment. And so we never traveled as kids. We only went to our grandparents. So I only went out to my grandmother in the Midwest or to my grandparents on the East coast, because all of my parents' money, uh, went towards our, our education, right? My, my mom was a government lawyer. My dad was a civil engineer. Um, but they invested in private school for my brother and I, and, um, you know, it really opened a lot of doors for us later in our lives. Are you familiar with the white oak farms? They've been, it's a regenerative, regenerative farm, I think in Georgia or one of the, somewhere in the deep South, it's been getting a lot of attention because, uh, the owner is on the Joe Rogan podcast, but, um, he, I think he sees the same thing that your father saw. He's like, look what we're doing to the land. Look at the runoff from the neighboring, yeah. you know, pig farms. Like it, it's, you, you can't turn away once you've seen it in person. Um, so, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think about, you know, your family farm, the Balamilu cookery school, which since the 1950s, like pre Alice waters was all about local and seasonal and these sorts of things. And yeah. Um, it's, I just, I wish that somehow if we'd had, you know, social media back then, then these, um, these visionaries and trailblazers would have gotten the, not the recognition that they deserve, but the recognition that would have, I think, helped push forward their correct point of view on how we, 
grow and raise our food. No, and especially on on runoff and those issues and the use of pesticides and and things like that. I think if you are working in natural systems, whether it be on a farm or in water systems like my dad was, and you just see the amount of chemicals involved and the amount of waste that's then required to be cleaned up uh, in order for us to have fresh and constant sustainable use of access to water, you know, it really, um, it really makes you think about the inputs and, and what you're doing in the process. And can you eliminate any of that? Can you simplify it? Yes. And just to think about what's going on inside those buildings to those poor animals too, is um, yeah. more than I think anybody ever could think about. Yeah. Or, or, no, you know, I mean, it's, it's too horrific. So there's a lot of, there's so much on the spectrum, but we have, uh, we have 80 cows that eat grass across, uh, you know, a couple hundred acres of land. Um, so it's, uh, they're outside, uh, they roam. That's the whole purpose, right? Is that they, they forage and, and eat it, what is uh what is available, but that is um far from the mainstream source of meat in pretty much most places in the world. This is the conversation that I have with my vegan friends. Um, uh, to me, it, if you're in a position where you can choose, yeah, meat consumption. And I and by the way, I think everybody can, as we know, like you know, mostly vegetarian peasant diets from let's say in England and, you know, the 18th yeah. century were much healthier than the uh, aristocracy that had access to, to imported sugar, but um, meat consumption should be exquisite and rare. Yep. Um, and I, I think now people are starting to realize uh, that how much protein is in plants and two, how little protein we actually need to get our daily allowance. So there's this whole marketing thing around protein, protein, protein. I think it started with like low carb diets. I'm like, we don't need, we need a fraction of the protein that we have access to on a daily basis. What we need more of is fiber. Um, and I think in combination with those two points of view, the switch to a more sustainable and healthy diet is really accessible to just about everyone. It is really accessible. And that's why I, I'm not a strict vegetarian. I don't cook meat at home. Um, I only have it when I'm at home with my parents and it comes from the farm. Or I'm at a really nice restaurant for a special occasion. And it's like, oh, this would be enjoyable, right? And that way you can cut out 95% of the meat that you probably used to eat as a kid. Yeah, totally. Um, and just have it in those types of settings and occasions. For me, it's literally, I know exactly where it came from, or it's a special occasion, or I don't want to be rude at someone else's house and they don't have anything else, right? But it's so easy to reduce. It's so easy to eat healthy, um, uh, both quality and amounts of meat. Yeah, and uh, agree. And and to finish out the the conversation with, that I have with my vegan friends, we're all very sweet people. I'm like, look, guys, like everything on this planet dies, and a lot of animals on this planet die because they're going to be eaten by something else. Yeah, um, whether it's a tiger and a you know a little, um, you know, deer or what have you. Um, yeah. And so I I believe again that if that animal lives as comfortable and natural a life as possible and eats what it's supposed to be eating. Um, I would much rather see that. And I, I don't know how cows are slaughtered these days, but if they're stunned or whatever, it, it, it's gotta be a quicker. And if it's done humanely, you know, um, more it easier death than, you know, yeah. having some sort of disease and, and, you know, whatever happens to an animal, if it can't walk yeah. or feed itself yeah. anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 
And also, if you look at a plow out in a field that's plowing whatever crop and there's, you know, a billion seagulls trailing behind it, those seagulls aren't interested in the seeds in the ground. They're interested in all the little critters that are in the ground. So I don't really know if there is such a thing as actual veganism unless you're growing No, exactly. Else. And I, I really struggle with like soy based products. Also, in my line of work, I mean, it's one of the major causes of deforestation, as is cattle. But like soy is not guilt free either. Um, it's really about, I mean, one of the things I really learned from my family was it is about balance and it is about not over consuming. Um, and those are really Midwestern, I would say values, especially, or in where my family grow up, grew up, um, that not over consumption, that actually everything is possible as long as we don't try to take too much. Um, and, and that's, that's actually, I think the world's biggest problem is consumerism and how much we take um, and how much we think we need versus how much we actually need. Uh, because actually, if we ate appropriately, ate appropriate amounts, purchased appropriately, all of this would be possible and possible for a much wider range of people than it's possible for for today. But there's just like such extensive consumerism. And it's so out of balance in terms of who is consuming and who is not. And, and somehow the next step for people who aren't consuming is to consume more. It's, um, it's gonna be a difficult system to right size. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on how we can course correct overconsumption? Oh. No is also a perfectly acceptable answer. That's yeah. not why I'm calling. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I had the answer. No, I had no oh. clue. Is totally fine. No, I have no clue. I mean, I think I I really tried to do it with my daughters, just like it was done with me, just about example and setting example, um, and really emphasizing to them, for example, when uh, they, uh, get clothes from their neighbor who is one year older, like how awesome is it that they got Nina's clothes and they don't need new clothes because Nina's clothes are awesome and they're still in good shape. And, um, I, I don't know, there's just a lot of how can we, how can we just set examples in small ways? I don't know how to then, how that rolls up into big ways. I think that's the real, that's the real challenge. We can all manage our households in that way. Um, does that change kind of behavior on a meta level? I don't know. I think to, I think so. I think that the way that we might do this, at least that's this is the approach in, in my company and my startup is that everything works in a network. You start with one household, one street, one block, one neighborhood, one city, one country. Yeah. Um, and, and that you hit the nail on the head perfectly when your daughters are so excited to get the clothes from the cool girl, Nina, who's a whole year older. And yeah, exactly. it's all about behavioral design. It's about, it's about redefining. It's about community versus convenience. Yeah. And that can, the pursuit of convenience, which is over, which is also overconsumption, isolates us it drains our bank accounts it it you know it, it relieves a, a dopamine craving and then that's it yeah. where and it's in the the pursuit of faster cheaper oh. is finite it has a dead end unless the ultimate goal is to give everybody everything they want at all times for free and instantly but human connection and happiness is infinitely scalable we just need that to be sort of the result and not the goal. The goal is what are we going to have for dinner tonight? You know, yeah. or um, that th this is the approach that we've been exploring anyway. And um, 
Yeah, don't get me started on on soy and tofu that's made yeah. by burning plastics in Southeast Asia. But um, that's uh, that's my um, um, it's how I justify my occasional hamburger. You know, it's like there you go. <laughs> this has to. This all needs to be taken holistically. Yes. Can you imagine your German ancestors coming to the United States to be, you know, diligent and prosperous farmers and are suddenly thrown into a country that is falling apart at the seams over the Civil War? Yeah. I mean, that must have been something um, that would have been difficult to cope with. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, the Midwest um, was. Yeah, I mean, Lincoln. So one of my very first memories of going to see my grandmother is that she took us to Springfield and the whole like Lincoln story um, because we're from Illinois uh, and it's a real source of pride um, for uh, uh, for the state um, where where my family uh, ended up migrating to. But I have no idea how they I think they probably just tried to like stay afloat. I mean, there weren't they weren't exposed to slavery in uh, Germany. They didn't have slaves on their farm in America. It must have just been this kind of, they probably had never been to the South, right? When they migrated, they just went straight <laughs> straight West where there was land um, for people to for people to buy. So they, I, it must have been surreal, you know? It must have been re- like you're feeling opportunity, but you're like, there's so much else going on here. I can't even get my head around it because I'm still speaking German at home. Um, you know, the, the area where they where they come from, like they still speak German in that area. Um, it must have. Yeah, it must have been surreal. And that I this think, is America. And this is, and this you, is know, America, de- yeah. it's, you know, depend on depending on what you consider relative recent history. Yeah. I was having this conversation with my husband a couple of days ago, but I asked him, do you realize that the, um, the number of years between when the civil war ended and world war two, wait, no, what was this? Uh, Yeah. So, so 1965 or 1865, um, um, world war, the civil war ends. So the number of years between when, African-American people uh, where where slavery was abolished. It's a very simple concept. I don't know why I'm struggling to articulate this (laughs) between that time and the number and the, the, the day that world war two started is the exact same amount of time as the day world war two ended to today. It's about 77, 78 years. Yes. It's like one generation, like one generation experienced all of that. Yeah. Puts things in a perspective. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side of your family, we have the last, the last czar um, rule yeah. in, uh, in Russia. Yeah. So poor Nicholas and, and his daughters and his wife are all executed yeah. by the Bolsheviks. And to me, I'm very fascinated by that period of time as well, because it, it really sort of represents from an aesthetic point of view, fashion and, um, and class nobility, the switch off between Old, the old world and modern worlds. Yeah, you know, um, it really does. And and your family was impacted by that as well. Yeah, it was literally that switch. So mm-hmm. my great grandfather was actually um, a pilot in the Tsar's Navy. Wow. If you can imagine that. 
I cannot, um, but that is very interesting. Yeah. And uh, was one of the first pilots uh, in, uh, in, um, in Russia. And um, when the Bolshevik revolution broke out, um, his military, I guess, crew, um, it'd be horrible to call them a team. Um, <laughs> like they uh, said, you have to evacuate the country within 24 hours. Um, and uh, he went home, picked up my great grandmother, his two sons. Um, they made it out of the country because, you know, he was czar. He was uh, the, from the military. Um, it was sort of either um, uh, you're in exile or you're executed. And they made it to London. And from London, they uh, got on a boat uh, to the US. And they came from a very, as you mentioned, like elite decorated, like military family in um, under the czar and showed up penniless uh, in New York. Um, and it's just a really, in, and that's why, you know, I think potentially my grandfather falls in one of those camps that really probably believes too much in the American dream because that is what his family achieved. Um, you know, they they came from something, arrived with nothing, and then rebuilt their rebuilt their future in the U.S. and and managed to maintain that kind of focus on aviation and um, you know public service, which is how he saw it um, by uh, by joining the U.S. Navy. So this is your grandfather, not your great grandfather, because this was yeah. in the earliest twentieth century. Yeah. So my grandfather was born in Sevastopol, Russia. What was his last name? Utkov. Mm. My mother is Marina Utkov. Did they, you know, have any time to, to suck away some, you know, Russian keepsakes or jewelry no. or anything beautiful <laughs> like that? Oh, too bad. Yes. <laughs> there are no Fabergé eggs in my attic. Oh, nothing um, in the Hermitage that you might no, be able to lay claim no, to? nothing oh, I can well. say actually belongs <laughs> in our house. No, they... Um, you know, they were a military family and um, they came over to the U.S. and uh, yeah, um, kind of rebuilt life from there. My um, uh, great grandfather became a test pilot. You know, aviation was just kind of taking off during this time period. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so worked on planes. And then, um, you know, my great grandmother as my grandfather got older, at that time you needed a senator's recommendation um, to get into the Naval Academy. And um, somehow via, 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 and through a network, I don't know how, uh, my grandfather got a, a recommendation to, uh, to attend the US Naval Academy. And yeah, served in um, uh, World War II and in uh, South Korea as a um, US Navy pilot. Oh. He must have been in his what mid mid twenties when he had his twenty four hours to pack up and get out and made his way no, over to no, London. No, he was a young boy. He was a young boy. He was, he was practically a baby. So that's what's really interesting <sighs> okay. is that he um, he grew up American, but as the but born in Russia and the son of uh, of Russian uh, of Russian immigrants, and um, with a name like Vadim Utkov, you're you're never really allowed to forget that. Mm-hmm. So I'm wait. I'm getting confused. So who was the pilot for the the Russian the, the Russian military? My great grandfather. That was of course, of course, yeah. yeah. My great. So he would have been born grand... in like the late 1800s. Okay. Yeah, and then yeah, my yeah. grandfather was the U.S. Navy pilot. Right, right. Of course, of course. Okay, and so so great grandfather 
is your great did was your grandfather at that point born in the u.s or born in Russia? no he was born in russia he was born in so Central he gets school. his so your great-grandfather packs up his family gets the family over to the to london and then ends up in new york yes and did they stay in new york city or i think they moved to connecticut they were outside right outside of new york mm-hmm. um they were working on uh, my great-grandfather started working with uh, Scucorsi on the helicopter it just was kind of connected to the aviation industry uh, in uh, in general. Um, so there was a lot of work out in Connecticut on the farms. They were using actually farms to, to test airplanes and aircraft, uh, including helicopters. Um, and that's what he spent his time uh, in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. doing. And my grandfather went to public school and he worked in a factory on the side. Um, but, you know, his older brother... Uh, left the family one day, hitchhiked, you know, off to California to try to make his fortunes. Um, it's a really, it's a, it's a very American tale. Well, it is a very American tale because in a way it's sort of the best thing that could have happened to your grandfather because he probably would have ended up fighting for the Russians in World War II. And yeah, yes, I mean, they must have felt that pull or, you know, that sense of, wow, that could have been me, you know, I mean, who knows? Yeah. But... You know, it's really interesting talking to him about the war because he served in the South Pacific. So he was pretty far away from uh, Europe. I think that that would have raised a lot more um, issues and questions. And I think that Russian part of him, it was much harder for him to think about that, like in the in the 50s. Mm-hmm. When sort of all of the suspicion around Russia and Russians and the Cold War happened. And he had, you know, grown up trying to be, because at that time, if you were an immigrant, you tried to, to assimilate and become American as fast as possible, right? So he went by VAD. Um, you know, he he served in the U.S. military. He, he became, he, he was a U.S. citizen. Um, and then in the 50s, you know, all of the suspicion started happening around Russia and the Cold War. And then all of a sudden, he was, you know, Vadim Utkov, the Russian-born uh, graduate from the Naval Academy again. Um, and I think that that was a bit hard for him. Uh, not that he didn't have fun with it. Uh, he said it was uh, <laughs> the first time that they were, like, they were doing wiretapping, but apparently it's very bad and you can, um, you can understand, um, you know, or you can understand that someone else is on the line. So he said he they had a Russian nanny at the time when my mom was a baby. And he said he used to give very complicated instructions to her about something like changing my mom's diaper or that my mom was sick just to, you know, have them be looking up every word in the dictionary. Because <laughs> um, awesome. he would speak to her in Russian, obviously, the nanny, um, to, to have them have to spend hours translating only to figure out it was about like a diaper rash that my mom had. <laughs> very good wow wiretapping that is crazy and of course you know in that part of the country in that you know in the middle of the 20th century probably you know i mean how many people spoke a different language in in in, in their yeah. home yeah millions you know it wasn't so uncommon but the yeah no. you get if you're russian at that time you get singled out so a bit of bad luck there yeah oh god interesting okay so now back to you <laughs> so Rebecca's the first person to to leave home after five generations on the farm. Oh yeah, back to Europe. Yeah. So what's going on there? Graduate from high school, then what happens? Yeah. So I went to I went to university um, up in Rhode Island and also studied political science. 
like my mom. Um, I also did my first job after university was in AmeriCorps, uh, also like my mom, um, just kind of that public service vein. And then I, I don't know, I think maybe it was something about um, not traveling very much as a kid or growing up in DC where your local news is national news. Like I just had this itch, you know, <laughs> to yeah. travel. And if, to, can I interrupt really quick, oh, Rebecca, and yeah. ask a question about that? I am fascinated by people in America who grow up in, in essence, one industry towns, you know, LA, yeah. Yeah. San Francisco, Washington, DC. Um, that seems to be a common theme. Does anybody, does anyone in Washington, DC talk about or think about anything other than politics? No, yeah. I was just home <laughs> for, for Christmas and it's all we do. I love it. I don't get it. So I don't mind it. And I love government towns. It's really funny. Like I'm a Sacramento person, not a San Francisco person. I, I love government towns. They're quiet. Things are hypothetically being done there, you know, like whether they are or not. I believe in the institutions because I grew up around them. My mom and my grandparents have served in them. Um, there's a, you know, a nice disillusionment with that later in my 20s. But, um, you know, yeah, it's it's funny. Those single industry towns, it's like you can't shake it. Like I like living in capitals. Nice. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> But maybe you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe you do know why. Okay. So we majored in political science. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's it's in the home, you know, it, it, keep going, keep going. Yeah. So I worked in San Diego for a year um, as a AmeriCorps volunteer in the Volunteers in Service to America uh, program, which is part of AmeriCorps. Um, and I worked on uh, in a law firm that did pro bono uh, political asylum cases for refugees coming into into the U.S. Um, and it was interesting. And what's have, the what's the time period at this point, if you don't mind my asking? I am in 2003 now. Okay. So it was All a right. really 2003 2004. It was a really interesting time to be working. I think it's always interesting to be working in immigration because uh, it's never super. I think since the 70s, it's never been super popular to let people into our country. Um, and uh, yeah, you're working in San Diego, which is a military, wealthy, old money town, and everyone asks you why you're trying to help Mexicans cross the border. <laughs> My clients are Iraqi. Or they're Kenyan. Mm, they're yes, they seeking have, asylum. Yes, it's yeah, different. they're seeking asylum. They've uh, spent up to a decade sometimes trying to get here. Um, it was a really impactful experience for me, and that's what I then went and did my graduate studies in um, over at uh, over at Oxford. Was in uh, forced migration in the um, uh, International Development House there. A uh, question about AmeriCorps. What was uh what were what type of work were you doing with and through AmeriCorps? I was a legal assistant, mm -hmm. so I helped uh, the lawyers prepare their cases. So um, I mean, one thing that's hard about being a, a political side, you often have zero evidence of your story, right? So mm -hmm. you have to cooperate that this was happening to this Kurdish community in Iraq at this time period, and that um, stories like the defendants. Are, um, are quite common and um, would, you know, she, in this case, it was a she, she would face risk upon uh, forced return to Iraq due to her uh, cultural uh, and ethnic uh, identity. Um, 
and yeah, so I did a lot of research, but I also got to sit with the, the clients and um, help them prepare their testimony. We did a lot of practicing. Um, this was always, you could have an interpreter, but it was always better if it was in English um, because the, the judges were quite impatient. Um, and so just watching the lawyers prepare people. And that was really hard on some level because you're, you're asking them, you're trying to shake them, right? Uh, because that's what they're going to receive in court. Uh, and I found that it was really, whew, it was really intense. It was a very intense first year of employment out of the bubble of college. Let me just put it that way. Um, intense how? Well, you are all of a sudden exposed to um, drastically different lives than your own. Um, I think for me, you know, going back to my mom's side of the family, we were part of the, both of my families were part of the wave of open arms, right? Come to America, come establish your family here, just sign your name, welcome to our country, best of luck to you. Um, and then here are these people who had spent, you know, decades trying to get into the US had been put in jail, maximum security detention centers upon arrival and are having to prove an impossible right? Because they fled with nothing. And I think I just was really struck by privilege, by history, um, by the efforts and perseverance of these people. And then also knowing such an effort to get to the United States. And then your, your issues and challenges are certainly not solved, even if you're the remote chances you're lucky enough to win your political asylum case. That sounds terrifying, actually, to be ex confronted and exposed at such a young age to such yeah. heavy humanitarian issues. Yeah. And you're doing it in your own, in your own country. I think that's what's so interesting and important about programs like AmeriCorps. It's, it's one thing if you go to somebody else's country and it feels far away or you feel like this is different, but no, like these are people in prison in my own country who have already suffered considerably and are just, are just trying to have a safe and fair chance at life. Um, How many of these people would get their asylum? most like at that a, point or no it's a fraction it's a fraction sometimes for certain populations they do a blanket um acceptance i think they did it for um like uh, the somali population back in the 90s um uh we did it for cubans um but yeah it's a it's a fraction because you it, it has to be specific to you so it means that you as an individual needed to have been targeted in your own country um, you're different than a refugee, right? A refugee is something in mass. Uh, but if you're a political asylum applicant, you have to show like intentionality to you as an individual based on the characteristic you cannot change about yourself. Um, like your nationality, your gender, your religion. Right. And so you have a pretty good chance of seeking asylum if somehow your story becomes famous because... Yeah. Whether or not it's it's proof, it's an accepted narrative. So, you know, come on over famous Russian ballet dancers. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but if you've like spent 10 years, I mean, a lot of these um, clients, you know, they were in refugee camps for years and then someone would send them money and they would be able to travel. And then they all came out through Central America um, and then were either caught crossing the border. And that was the worst case scenario because then you were put in jail or they were successful in crossing the border illegally. And then if you apply proactively, your chances are infinitely better. So throughout your family history and your early career, you've you've been exposed to all of these 
facets and aspects of America that almost no one else has. Regenerative farming, the, you know, the beautiful educations that the the women in your family and the generations before you pursued and had the opportunity to receive. Uh, the the uh, asylum process for people who have the the will and the spirit and the drive to endure a decade of displacement, discomfort, fear no. for a chance to live in this country only to most likely be rejected and then send back to the country of origin or yeah or deported yeah. across the border and kind of don't try again type thing. Uh. Wow. So, so that was about a year. And then you're like, okay, I've, I've done this. I'm, I need to move on or yeah. Was, yeah. It's a year of service. So mm-hmm. it's, the program is designed for a year. Yes. Um, so uh, I then moved back to the East coast uh, to uh, lived at home for a year. So I could save money for grad school. Um, worked at a, a nonprofit downtown in DC uh, that actually focused on transport. It was a complete, like a, a new public bus line. It was night and day. Um, but I think that's what's so great about your 20s is to like work in different environments for different issues, causes, see, see what sticks, see what inspires you. Um, but yeah, it was great. I was uh, saving up for grad school and had a, had a year uh, at home in DC. And then we're off to Oxford. Yes, yes. Okay. And that was the last time I lived full time in the U.S. So, how does an American um, student get into Oxford? What's the application process like? Um, I think it's the same as applying to grad school anywhere, except um, uh, you don't have the same standardized testing. That part is different, but you write essays about how this connects to what you've done and what you hope to achieve. Um, your academic record, your professional record uh, is shared. Um, I had actually applied when I was in San Diego um, and it was very, you know, I was working in political asylum issues and then applied to a forced migration uh, program, um, academic program. So the kind of content connection was clear, but um, I think there was also a part of me that just really wanted to get abroad. So I, um, my top priorities were actually looking at academic programs abroad. And why did you want to go abroad so badly? I think, yeah, I just wanted to see the world. I wanted to experience different uh, cultures. Um, I had studied abroad in Spain when I was in university and had a friend um, who was studying in London. And I went to, uh, I went to visit him and we took a day trip out to Oxford and I just, I don't know, I was just mesmerized. Right. I mean, in America, everything is so new relatively. Oxford has all of these buildings from, you know, the 1500s. Um, it's still a university town. I went to a very, uh, I would say more hippie liberal school without walls university at Brown. So to then see the opposite of that, which was like centuries of tradition in a school. Um, I don't know. I was struck by it. I was a, a little enchanted with it. Thought, uh, thought it looked like the Harry Potter movies. Um, and then my friend actually told me about a program that they had, which was really aligned with what I was working in at the time. So I, uh, so I applied. Okay. Yeah, I do the same thing. Even I've lived in Amsterdam for 17 years now, and I still just love to run my hands over the bricks of the buildings and just think about the history that you're touching yeah. and the yeah. lives that have been lived inside those walls. And I, I never tire of the rom- the romantic notion of exactly of, of living in the old world. Um, 
Okay. So tell me again, what was your area of interest of, in study that Oxford had a, a program that was compatible with um, with what you were wanting to study? Tell me that again. Yeah. So it was a master's in forced migration. Yes. So, so what is forced migration? Exactly? Yeah, it covers the range of things. So political asylum is a, is a very small number of portion of the people who are forced to move away from their homes. Um, you have refugees, you have internally displaced people. And we looked at the causes and consequences of forced migration. So what drives it? Um, is it war? Is it economics? Is it climate change? Um, and then what are the implications for those people, for the communities that they enter? Um, it was a fascinating course because it looked at the legal dimension, the economic dimension, even ethical questions. So why do we feel the responsibility to help someone who shows up at our door, but not the responsibility to help someone who's in trouble, you know, far away? Um, so why do we accept people when they when they show up? But if they if they apply um, to come to our country from a million miles away, we say no. What, like, what's the difference? Is it literally that they're standing there? And that's that's pretty much it. Um, so it was a really interesting kind of multidisciplinary course. I think I was trying to figure out if I wanted to go to law school. And I think I really, um, discovered in this, uh, in this grad program that, um, the law was just too technical and slow moving <laughs> for me, which you would think growing up with a lawyer's mom, I would have known already, um, <laughs> given how long like, her cases took and, how clearly and, and, and adeptly she can uh, split and clarify and um, use words. And I, I got really interested in sort of the economic kind of causes and consequences of, uh, of migration um, and uh, found that uh, just a really interesting way to look at how people move and why they move and how their fortunes change. Mm. Let's go into this a little bit more because this is this is very interesting. What are some of the top themes that you can reveal about conclusions that you made after this study or the level of expertise that you've come to acquire? For example, I, I'm looking for um, not exactly pejoratives, but but to say something like, well, um, I can I can firmly declare that no uh, you know developed country has ever suffered as uh, uh, suffered any consequences from immigration. It's only benefited, or or, yeah. or so, some sort of proclamation. I'm making that up. That could be true or not true. But what are some top level things that people should know about forced migration? Um, the, the psychological factors that you discussed. First things that come to mind. Yeah, so I would say, I think what people don't understand who want to close their doors is how much harder it will be to keep those doors shut as the problems and drivers that cause those people to show up on your doorstep grow and grow and grow. And I think the other thing I would say about it is actually nobody wants to leave their home. Um, you know, it is so arrogant, I think, for us sometimes to assume that uh, this Kurdish woman from Iraq, it was her heart's desire to live in the U.S. and she schemed her way to figure out how to make that happen. 
You know, I think people really don't understand that, you know, despite economic differences or what opportunities available to them, most people enjoy living in their home and want to be in their culture and want to be near their family. Um, mm -hmm. And I think if you take that lens to it, both to um, the causes that drove them here are not going to go away and are only going to grow. And the fact that they don't want to uh, be here and that they would actually like to be peacefully at home, we might come up with some very different solutions on how we address, address forced migration issues. Just a modicum of empathy from that perspective. That's really beautiful and, and really sad. Um, on the flip side, something I was exposed to probably starting close to a year ago, uh, I'll take you to the, the border uh, between Poland and Ukraine. And mm. when millions of Ukrainians were were coming over into Poland, the Polish people really did a good job of of welcoming them. Uh, we did a project up there with um, a meal service provider, uh, and uh, th this is why I got access to this. We were doing um, reusables uh, for this meal service provider so that they weren't creating a whole bunch of single use waste um, as they were feeding people. And oh, great. it was a really nice project because they were then actually employing some of the Ukrainians to run the show. So there's these Ukrainian women, because of course, of course, mostly of the uh, migrants are women and their children who know how to run our processes that I haven't even met yet. So going back yeah. to what we were talking earlier about, you know, professions that create jobs, I just really hope that I get to meet these women one day. That's not why I'm bringing this up. The point of this is that now the tides are starting to turn a little bit. You know, we saw in the news that they're not letting these trucks come in from Ukraine and there's this like yeah. giant backlog. And, but I, I was getting tipped off that this was already happening, that Polish people are, Get it. it's the common tropes like they're taking our jobs they're taking all of our doctor's appointments they 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 are taking 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 and the the charitable empathetic feelings are starting to dissipate a little bit um yeah talk me through that phase of, of forced migration and how 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 is poland going to deal with this yeah i mean i i would extend the same empathy to poland right it is a lot to have millions of people suddenly cross your border. There's yeah. just no no way around it. It puts an incredible strain on your resources, on your culture. I mean, that's usually one of the biggest issues. Um, and so I think the problem is no one, no one plans for these things to happen, right? So it, it just accumulates and it happens quickly. And then, you know, it's very quick that that empathy turns to frustration, which turns to resentment, which turns to harder lines, right? Um, so I guess what I would say is that is a very natural response and on some level understandable. And I think it gets back to the point about those causes. If we are not addressing those causes, this is going to be, you know, rinse, repeat, happen over and over again and at greater and greater magnitudes. Um, so I think that there's something about preparedness of nations, about um, understanding that when it happens, that this is not easily or quickly remedied, right? I think the average um, amount of time someone spends in a refugee camp is over 10 years, right? So these situations are never quickly resolved. And I think if there is more communication around that and understanding of that, then expectations can maybe be managed a bit more, but it's all about how we deploy our resources and support people like, you know, what support was then Poland giving, getting from the European Union? Right. We saw this 
when was that migration issue with Greece and Italy and France? Was it like four or five years back? I mean, the problem is whoever's doorstep they arrive on, they bear the brunt of it. And this time it will be your doorstep. Um, but sometime next time it could be somebody else's doorstep. And we don't think in that kind of collective way, well, hmm, maybe I should help. <laughs> maybe I should help this neighbor who just received um, a bunch of uninvited visitors and is doing the best thing. They probably also need help. And instead we take this attitude, wasn't me. Thank goodness, wasn't my doorstep this time. Like best of luck with that. Um, and, and it's just a very singular approach still. So it's, it's hard because it's unfair on the host nation and it's really unfair to, you know, the, um, the group of the community of displaced people that have arrived. What would you predict is going to happen at the Southern U S border right now? Oh, I think nothing, but I'm very cynical. Mm -hmm. I think this is just an issue that politicians flare up whenever convenient um the border has been a mess for decades it's easier to get in it's less easy we are nice about it we are less nice about it it is so hyper politicized um that i don't see how anyone could ever create lasting change um it's the reason why all of our vice presidents get immigration as an issue it's unpopular you're unsuccessful in this role um i don't i don't actually know very much about u.s um, immigration today, but I just, it's honestly, I, I don't know. I'm so cynical about it. I just see it as a news ploy right now. Cause it's just the shared numbers of people arriving yeah. at the border. But what you're suggesting is perhaps that we do absolutely nothing and it's just going to be Mexico's problem. And it's no different than what happens in Europe. It's just Greece's yeah. problem. It's just Italy's problem. You deal with it. Yeah. I mm. think that that's the case. And I think that there's, you know, Migrants also are desperately searching for opportunities, right? So it's an election year. Well, A, the state of the world is not in a great place. So they're, again, they're not coming to the US because they want to, they're becoming because they feel that they have to, um, but it's an election year and everyone is nervous. If Trump gets reelected, those borders are gonna shut down even more. Um, so you're, you're naturally gonna see more of a mass influx right now, let alone the causes and consequences that are making them move. But yeah. Um, that's why I feel it's very political. Um, it just, it feels like an election year, uh, decision all around, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the other thing that I think about frequently is the opposite of forced migration, which is migration by choice, but it's sort of intra migration. And what I mean by that is people, on the West coast, mostly California choosing to move other places because they can't handle the, uh, they realize that they're miserable. They're paying, you know, a million dollars plus for a one bathroom, two bedroom house. Their commute is yeah. horrible. And so then what they do is, you know, these affluent people are moving out of the cities and then moving to secondary cities like Austin. It's all, you know, the, the joke, at least with my friends in Europe is it's just Californians. It's not Americans. Like every, any Americans welcome <laughs> to move to Europe except for the Californians, because all they do is raise the property values and price all the locals out of their houses. And they've been <laughs> doing it in the U S for years. And now they're starting to do it in Portugal and Spain as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the interesting thing, thing that happens is in that second layer of strata of society that suffers like the services industry, you know, restaurants are suffering or yeah. the plinth level economy um, if there's, you know, none of these people accompany these 
restaurants anymore. Just the, the life is getting, it, it, is it going to happen? The life is getting sucked out of these cities. And I, again, I go back to San Francisco as the prime example and maybe Seattle next um, as cities that could be, I don't know if on the brink of collapse is too much, too dramatic yeah. of a thing to say. And I, I think the reason that that is dramatic is from a distance for 20 years, I've been asking myself, is this, if we hit rock bottom, it can't possibly get worse than this, whatever this is, whether it's yeah, you know yeah, homelessness yeah. or drug addiction or yeah. the Kardashians and every, and it always seems to find a lower bottom. And I think maybe because we're so adaptive as a species, yeah, we just, you know, when I um moved to Amsterdam, we moved from Seattle and I didn't go back to Seattle for after that move from another four years. And with that four years, the city was totally unrecognizable to me. And now it's like even worse um, in terms of the visible wealth disparity or any yeah. patch of grass has a homeless encampment on it. Um, when is this going to, again, course correct, turn around? How is it possible? Are we in this sort of seismic shift globally through forced migration, um, migrate, you know, intra-migration by choice? It's a very strange time, I think, right now. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, it's what you see in the in the U.S. cities you just described as well. It's it's no different than a border between two countries. It's a like kind of a circling of wagons. Right. And protecting, you know, a wealthy uh, community, protecting what they have um, at the expense of, you know, broader public services and health and safety for an entire community. Um, and I, I am no expert in this. I don't always know what causes it. How conscious is it? Is it how connected to our human nature is it? Um, I, I'm, I'm no expert here, but it is a similar dynamic of, I better just make sure I secure this for myself and my family and my community. Um, because the idea of sharing it more broadly is too risky. Yeah. And I think we're all guilty of that on some aspects in our lives. I think, which makes me think it, it has to be connected to human nature on, on some level, right. To it's very hard to disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like a this pleasant view <laughs> on humanity, well, but I feel like it has to be somewhere deep, deep, deep within us. Cause you can, you can see it on a global scale. You can see it on a neighborhood scale. You can see it in individuals. Um, it's a it's a hard thing to to change about oneself or one's community, I think. Or if it's impossible to change, where do we go from there? Yeah. Um, again, prevention is always better than cure. I mean, it's like this yeah. this global game of musical chairs that we know that when the music stops, there's going to be one less chair. The interesting thing is that who or what gets to pull that chair away. Yeah. The, you know, that those those factors can vary. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so point. we've graduated from Cambridge. From Cambridge, Oxford. Yes, sorry, I'm so sorry. I am very so sorry. I've got to tell you <laughs> that I have this sort of um, this little Sarah Palin tick, where sometimes I will get so <laughs> nervous about saying Oxford when I should say Cambridge, or vice versa. Or another one I have is I'm so nervous that I'm going to say astrology instead of or say astrology what I mean to say astronomy that yeah. I'll always end up saying astrology like I always there's like I have a handful of these things. It's when you just pivot Beth and you go with like studying of stars. 
Yes, I do need to find <laughs> a new way of doing this. So now I've added this to my list. Um, David Sedaris has a great a great um, piece about this in in his book, um, Me Talk Pretty One Day, where he had to go to speech therapy because he had a lisp. And instead of working on pronouncing, pronouncing his S's correctly, he just avoided any word that had an S in it. So <laughs> I usually try to avoid these topics. Anyway, at Oxford, yes. we've graduated. Yes. We're going to spend the rest of our adult life up until today living in Europe. Yeah, it, was, it was definitely not the plan. It was not the plan. <laughs> no. Okay, so there's two things here I want to explore. Why was that not the plan? And then you also, I think, mentioned a few minutes ago something about becoming disillusioned later in your 20s. So what happened there? Talk me through this oh, period of your yeah, life. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I think... Um... It would be really hard for me to put my finger on that exact moment, but I always assumed I would work in government. You know, I grew up in a government town. My mother worked for the government, had a very meaningful career to, you know, to her. Um, I just, I had great respect for these institutions. Um, It could have been a little bit post 9-11, kind of also the rest of the U.S. becoming or the world becoming a little disillusioned uh, with the U.S. and what it meant um, to serve in it, especially with the war in Iraq. Um, And then, you know, Congress just increasingly becoming a becoming a mess. You know, I I grew up when like uh, uh, the assault uh, rifles weapon ban was uh, was passed, right? Like it, it just all seemed to be trending in the right direction on, on some level. And mm-hmm. I think I just kind of slowly became disillusioned with, um, yeah, with government, not government service. I still hold that in really high regard, but I thought I might potentially do more of the political side um, and just all different pieces of it, the politics behind war, the politics behind financing. It just, um, you know, you start to look a little bit more underneath the hood as you see how the machine is running as you get older, right? It's not just walking by the buildings as a kid or on a field trip or hearing, you know, your mom talk about her work at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I also just started to really um, enjoy uh more like the economic way of looking at the at the world so like I said I I was thinking about going to law school um focusing on on that and I just was too slow I was too impatient too young to like okay great I've been in the UK I want to keep um I want to keep seeing the world and I had written my dissertation at Oxford on UK Libya um uh, asylum cases and cases of non-refoulement, which means you've granted a person, um, once you've granted someone asylum, it is um, under international law, you cannot return them back to that country because you have uh, um, you have acknowledged that there is a risk to their life and safety if they go back to their country. But nonetheless, countries still try to do that. So I wrote my dissertation on the UK trying to return a bunch of Libyans back to Libya who had actually received asylum in um, uh, in the UK. And they weren't saying that these people were lying. They weren't saying that there was anything wrong. They just said that Libya, Libya had improved enough for them to now go back. And asylum isn't something with like a time, <laughs> the time span on it, right? Because it's connected yeah. to you as an individual. And so that's what I was writing my dissertation on. And um, a friend in my program 
um, was like, what are you going to do after this? And I really thought, okay, maybe uh, not law school now, maybe I'll go uh, work for the UNHCR. Uh, and she was sort of like, good luck with that. You're American. They're overrepresented in the, U in the UN. You'll never get a job. Um, I was like, okay, great. Thanks. That's encouraging. I, you know, you take these comments at face value at that age. You're like, okay, strike that off the list. Yeah. Um, and she's like, but I'm going to these, um, do you know that all these consulting firms come and recruit here and they always have free food? I'm like, oh, really? That's great. Like I'm a poor grad student. I'll come with you to one of these um, presentations. So I I did the rounds. I went to McKinsey, Bain, BCG, enjoyed my free appetizers and, and glass of wine. But I, I went to one um, called Monitor Group. And one of the partners who was doing the kind of here's what we do was like, who here knows anything about Libya? And I was like, what? And it was this consulting firm that um, also focused on economic development issues and happened to be doing quite a, work, a lot of work in Libya. And um, yeah, I was just sort of sold. I can't say that I put much more thought into it besides that. I applied. It was a way to stay abroad because they also facilitated a work permit for you. And um, I would be based in London and I was just determined to get on their Libya projects. But of course, I've still to this day never been to Libya um, because they didn't have any room on um, they didn't have any room on their Libya project when I joined the firm. And they said, but you're, this shows how much the firm knew about the region of the world at the time. They said, oh, you're, you're generally interested in this area. Um, we're thinking about sending uh, some women to um, uh, Saudi Arabia on a project that we have there. Would you be interested? Um, Did you feel at this point it was a little bit of bait and switch or were you feeling okay about it still? No, because you joined. Yeah, I was feeling fine. Mm. A, you're, you're like 25 and you're not really thinking about these things too much. Um, but B, yeah you know, you're a consultant, right? So it is project-based work. So I wasn't guaranteed to be put on a project in Libya, right? I just knew that uh, this, the fact that this firm did this type of work was really interesting to me. And they did a lot of economic development consulting um, and, uh, and for governments. And so I thought, oh, great. I get to stay abroad. I get to learn about other countries' governments without working for those governments. Um, uh, and I've just spent all my money on grad school. So this would be helpful. <laughs> that was the grand scheme of uh, of thought that went into this decision uh, at 25 years old. Sounds like, and, and you know what? That sounds perfectly fine criteria yeah. at that age. Like, just get in there. So, just get in there. Like, this yeah. ticks enough boxes and yeah. seems super interesting. Um, so, I ended up being sent to Saudi Arabia, and it was fascinating. I think the Saudi Arabia of 2007 is uh, very different than the Saudi Arabia of today. Tell me about uh, your first week. Lat, you've got not you've flown yeah. there. They set you up in an apartment. Tell me, tell me about that first week was like. Yeah, you're living in a compound, which mm -hmm. I've obviously never seen or been exposed to before. So um, people are checking for bombs uh, under your car. You go through this whole like zigzag to get into this completely gated community um, where the compound is. And, you know, again, to show you the extent of research I did before saying yes to this, I was like, why are they searching for uh, bombs at a compound? You know, <laughs> like two years earlier. A bomb so on a scale started. of prison to all inclusive resort, where does it fall? <laughs> I would say, unfortunately, more on the prison side because it is just homes. And there's a restaurant on the compound and there's a pool, but it's not, um, it's not like the movies. It's, um, it's pretty dull. 
and you uh, you have to find ways to entertain yourself. Um, so usually leaving the compound was the most uh, entertaining. And they had sent not just me, but one other woman. So we were the only two women um, from the company working in uh, in Saudi Arabia. And it was fascinating. I mean, the other thing that was funny is we had to wear abayas. Yes. Um, and they had sent, they had asked the two male, two male team members to send us abayas where we were in London so that we would be properly dressed um, when we arrived. And we arrived and we immediately realized that they had picked out like garbage bags for us and that actually an abaya is a very sophisticated garment that signals all sorts of things about your your wealth and your class level and your education. It's a piece of clothing, just like anything else. It's, it's plain, but there are all these subtleties that kind of send the signals, the clothing signals. And Rachel and I- Do you mean like if the sleeves are adorned or something? Yes, exactly. The Mm -hmm. quality of the fabric, how well it is tailored, you know, are you tripping over it? Um, Just way more subtle than what we have in terms of Western fashion, right? But Mm -hmm. it's there nonetheless. Um, So uh, Rachel and I were quick to discover that um, we were completely inappropriately dressed. And so in our first week, we're trying to- How did you discover this? Well, you just look around. I mean, observation. So you go to a business meeting and we were brought in because the government agency we were working for um, had hired young Saudi women, um, which was fantastic. They were a very forward looking government agency. And um, so they thought it would be nice if the consultants that they brought in, um, you know, these women could see themselves mirrored. Right. Um, Professionally. And it was great for us and it was great for for them. And then there was the very practical reason that the women had a separate work area and some of the more senior women are male colleagues. There was no meeting area for them to meet in. Mm. Had to literally be in the governor's office uh, to have a mixed gendered uh, meeting. So we served a very practical purpose. Um, And yeah, so you go into the women's section and there was very apparent that we were were wearing a, a cheap garbage bag. And so, so I mean, well, how was it apparent? Were they looking at you like you were the janitor or they offered like names of places where we could go get Oh, sweet. Very polite. Yes. You might want a second one of those. That's very Uh, Middle Eastern. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, really? Where can we get one? And then you just notice, right? Like ours were polyester. Theirs were like actual cloths. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and it was such an amazing, I spent seven years then in the Middle East. So again, not planned. Um, that I worked in Saudi, Syria, Jordan, Kuwait, all on different projects, mostly for pretty much all actually for different government agencies. Um, And it was a fascinating insight into the region that I don't think a lot of people have insight into and certainly not on a professional level. Um, Let's get into that more, a lot more. Uh, I guess it's going on three years now very spur of the moment decision. The details aren't important. I went to Dubai for the first time on a female entrepreneurial study trip. Mm. And I was enchanted almost immediately by what is going on in that part of the world with female leadership, female education, female emancipation. Now, of course, that first trip was highly curated. And I know that. But massively progging. Yeah, this 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 fascination of mine is. Uh, I've been back to the to the UAE a number of times. I would love to start uh, my company there, um, a branch of it. I intend to do so. The next one of these study trips is in Saudi, 
Um, they're mm. quite expensive. So I would love to go if I, if I'm in a, um, in a position to do so. Yeah. But again, like getting that, that perspective that's faceted and not, um, so available to most people when I, when I come back from these trips, like talking about how excited I am, about what's happening with women in this part of the world, I get these raised eyebrows, like really? And I'm like, look, it's not yeah. perfect. There's still with human rights. Yes, of course. Like, a um, a long way to go, but especially with the UAE, I actually see a lot of similarities between the UAE and the Netherlands, but in like opposite extremes. For example, they're both experts in water management, but for totally different reasons. Um, yeah. They're both services-based economies. So they're quote unquote tolerant of all these different cultures and people coming in from all over the world because it's good for business. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, again, becoming friends with Emirati women, um, or Middle Eastern women coming from wherever, but especially the Emirati women, their life feels very normal to them. So one of the women that I'm, she's so charismatic. Uh, I think she's, she can't be more than 30 years old. She's already on her like second PhD or something. She's like, oh, listen, my father has two wives. Yes. Or three or whatever. I have 10 brothers. They all want me to marry this guy. I say, no, 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 no. I am going to get my education. It's just like, she would be talking to her like overprotective brothers. Now, of course, the context of the paradigm is it, from a cultural or religious point of view is quite different than maybe what we're used to. But on the day-to-day -day level, it's it's the same. It's just family. And the abaya, yeah. once you're surrounded by women in abaya, it's just it's just clothing, you know? Yeah. And and it, it, yes, it's a different level of modesty than what we're used to, but it, we're so adaptive that it just you just look past it once you're immersed in that culture so quickly. And and I have to say, my ex I actually appreciate, and maybe this is because I'm a little bit older woman, but I appreciate the decorum that yes. I and the gentility that I experience there. I think it's sort of adorable that an Emirati man um won't invite me to drive in his car with him alone. I like the fact that they won't shake your hand unless you extend your hand first. There in a world, in our world where decorum is is, you know, beyond fraying at the edges is in complete tatters. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate that. I like the fact that the women can have their own cart on the uh, car on the metro system. You know, yeah. I don't necessarily think that it comes from a place of sexism. I, no. I, maybe it does, but I don't. I, I haven't been there enough to know. You would know more, but but from the I, I don't know. I really love the version of myself that I only can express when I'm in that part of the world. Interesting. Tell me yeah. your thoughts. No, so I, it's funny, whenever I say that I spent this much time in the Middle East, I always get, oh my God, what was it like as a woman and as a blonde mm -hmm. woman? And I'll be like, it was the most respectful seven yes. years professionally I've ever experienced. Yes. And I made dear lifelong friends. That's yes. that's what it was like. And of course, you know, um, you're only operating in some part of the culture, but that's true in any country that you go and live in. Even if you live there, it's, you know, it's a certain population that you're dealing with. I can't speak for all for example, all Saudis are all uh, all people in that region. But that was my experience. It was immensely respectful um, and it was immensely warm. Uh, my daughter is named uh, Noura after uh, my Saudi friend. And that's uh, that's her namesake. And it means light. And um, it's based on a beautiful friendship uh, that has spanned, you know, years and um it's, uh, I, I find it an incredibly warm and hospitable culture. 
I've learned a lot from it, like all cultures and political systems, you don't agree with everything. Um, but I think it's a very easy region to stereotype. And I think it's so poorly understood globally. Um, and I really have high hopes um, for what they can achieve with time. I have very high hopes. In fact, I think that the future is going to emerge from that part of the world. And I think that Western society is going to be blindsided by it. That's my prediction. Yeah. Here's why. Because because it's a desert. So global warming has actually already happened there. And if they don't yeah. have their water <laughs> management figured out, everybody dies in three days. Second, when people, when I talk to people about how much of a sort of fangirl I am of this part of the world, the first thing that comes back to me is gay rights, murder journalists, and um, slave labor uh, that built, you know, this society. And I was like, okay, all true. However, especially the UAE, this is a country that is 50 years old. So let's check our hypocrisy when we look at how many, you know, journalists, you know, America has killed or have invaded, you know, Central or South America or the, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute, like, give them a minute, you know, they're going to allow for gay rights and gay marriage faster than any Western country yep. ever could have <laughs> ever could have possibly achieved. So yeah. let's just watch it, you know, um, and, and investing um, in, they're just leapfrogging so many things also yes. because they're only 50 years old, right? They don't have the burden of a lot of legacy. Um, you know, if you think, look at their investments in infrastructure, it's just like, wouldn't it be nice just to skip the past couple hundred years of inefficient systems and go straight to what they're, what they're developing in their cities. It's going to be somebody who's touched on this before, Rebecca, about kind of being disenchanted with the inefficiency or the slowness of government, yeah. there are some distinct advantages to a benevolent dictatorship. You could just get yeah. stuff done really fast, you know? <laughs> you, you absolutely can. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I interrupted no, you, but yeah. No, no, no. I, I just, I really, it's really nice to hear. I don't, um, I don't often meet people who have experienced life in the Middle East. Um, and, uh, and I think that those who have come away with a real appreciation for it, um, yeah, I mean, some of my worst professional experiences as a female <laughs> occurred in Europe and America. So like, it's just, I find it, um, it's such a, an easy jab and stereotype to make about the Middle East, but that was certainly not my experience there. Yeah. And it seems like the more, um, liberal or I'm not going to use the W word, but enlightened, you know, my friends seem to fancy themselves, the harsher they are about a part of the world that they have no experience with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So we spent seven years in the Middle East. What I'm trying to, to, to steer you toward is the transition in your work life from being very um, humanitarian focused to more environmentally focused I mean specifically yeah. we're basically going for people to plants so tell me how we got there yeah no it's a it's um it's a windy story I can't say that there was a lot of common um uh common threads through it like I said as a consultant they put you on all of these different projects but one of the, my very first um projects in the Middle East is kind of at that intersection between economics, resources, and people, right? So I worked on a lot of food security issues. As you know, the Middle East is food insecure. They um, they don't have a lot of natural resources. Most of their food is imported. 
And I arrived there, you know, right, uh, right before the global financial crisis, which then, um, you know, many in the West don't realize resulted in a global food crisis um, mm. in terms of access to uh, food, let alone food at, a, at an affordable price. Um, and that was kind of a, a theme throughout uh, a lot of my work in the Middle East um, and how that connected to population dynamics. Um, because Saudi, for example, has a very young and growing population. So how do you how do you feed this population? How do you avoid catastrophe that would result in mass migration, for example? Um, and then in Syria, interestingly, when I was um, uh, working still on the on the government on the government issues, more broadly, I would say I moved from humanitarian to economic development. Again, really wanting to focus on what are the causes that make people leave. So less with the immediacy of the issues around migration, I started to work more in what are the causes that can prevent those types of, of situations from happening? How do we develop these nations? Um, and how do they, sorry, how do we, that's the most horrible thing I've ever said. How do they, <laughs> how do they develop themselves? What are their you know, competitive advantages, if you will, so that they can create and sustain an environment for their culture and their population so that you can avoid catastrophe, whether it be political, economic, or climate related. Um, and that was a big uh, question when I first arrived in Saudi, because you have a very wealthy nation, but was really at, um, at the mercy of imports, um, uh, scared about its, you know, um, young population and what that would mean. And then, you know, when I was working in Syria, um, the Arab Spring broke out. Mm, wow. And mm -hmm. um, if you really trace the origins of that back, it's about the deteriorating economic development um, in, in Syria and largely due to climate change that impacted its agricultural sector and migration to cities and people who didn't have jobs um, causing pent up frustration that um, had no outlet in a, in a country that did not allow political expression. Um, but you just, you start to trace these issues back to the to the causes, what makes people angry. Um, and that's where I really focused a lot of my time. And, you know, surprise, surprise, a lot of that has to do with natural resources and the management of our natural resources. And that longer term view uh, and that more holistic view is something that I had, you know, deep within me. Again, I didn't grow up in that in the farm, but that it kind of all came together a little bit more about natural resource management, um, healthy natural resource management being a critical lever to happy and healthy and safe lives for people. Um, and I say that with hindsight being 2020, but I think that that's where I started to develop that affinity more for nature. Um, and I went via, via agriculture. So in this time here, you know, I was working on food security. You then look at different supply chains to address that food security. So I spent some time in Rwanda. Um, I spent some time in, in Ghana looking at different agricultural value chains for investment um, that would have kind of produced food, but also that social, that double bottom line, as it was called at the time. Um, and it was around here that I just got really tired of writing the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I got really tired of writing the pitch deck to invest in the avocado farm. Like I wanted to run the avocado farm myself um, and uh, happened to get to connect connected at this time to uh, the founders of Land Life 
who were looking to do experiments with their technology in the most difficult areas of the world, i.e. like degraded, dry land where you it's hard to produce anything, um, food or uh, even just bring back nature that had been, been lost. And um, yeah, we were connected because they wanted to do an experiment in Saudi Arabia. And uh, Via Via happened to get connected to me, who happens to know many people in Saudi Arabia. And some of uh, Land Life's very first experiments are on my friend's farm, three hours uh, north of Riyadh. Um, so that's how that transition happened. I would say it happened over three to four years, um, where I was really working on economic development levels at a at a macro level. To okay, I want to be on the on the solution side of this, not just and the doing side of this, not just on the thinking side of it. Okay common theme you were a born ceo um <laughs> common theme okay so let's tell our audience um what land life does um so land life restores degraded uh degraded land globally um we work on land that had been lost to agriculture so over farming uh has been lost to wildfire uh, urbanization. And what we're trying to do is bring nature back on these landscapes. And it's very hard technical challenge to do because um, you're working with obliterated soils. There's no shade cover. Um, so we've really invested in developing the technologies and the know-how to kickstart these ecosystems um, that have been, uh, that have been devastated. And it's a really fine dance because you're basically designing a blueprint for nature that took millennia to naturally develop and you know all of a sudden you're you're trying to to repaint that picture the intricacies of that picture um, and so you're never going to bring it back to what it was but what can we bring it to um, that is robust and resilient for for the future now if i were to answer the question why are we talking today um i would answer it as follows i somehow, I don't remember how, came upon land life because I was just starting to think about Ozarka, this little, just germinating little seed of an idea. And I was exploring uh, any sort of material that was hydrophobic that could yes. be used for food purposes. And I thought, well, maybe there's yes. like a technology transfer here or something. And there wasn't, but then I was like, oh, this is, this is really interesting that these trees are sort of in the self-contained organic matter yep. where you could like measure the water content below the surface of the the ground do i have that correct or how is that like 50 no, percent correct so what we do is we create our cocoon helps cocoon. like incubate um tree seedlings so it kind of creates a, a microclimate for them and it's filled with about 25 liters of water which is kind of slowly released over time so it forces the roots of a tree to grow down deep and wide the problem is when you irrigate trees those roots are like, woohoo, water's at the surface. Why would I invest in going down? It's all here, but that doesn't give you a resilient tree. Um, and it helps it get through. So the cocoon forces the roots to, gives it just enough water to live, but not so much that it becomes dependent on an external water source. So it enables that journey that a tree needs to take to get its roots down as deep as possible to a, to a water source. And where you experience so much mortality, tree mortality, and why it's so hard to bring nature back is that journey is very difficult if those soils don't have water in them, don't have nutrients. So how do we give nature just enough of a leg up 
um, to increase the survival rates of trees that are planted without you know, creating a whole new cycle of dependencies and, um, and unsustainable practices. So is, is Land Life an NGO or a for-profit company? No, we are a for-profit company. And so who are your clients? So our clients, that model has shifted over time. When we first started and probably when we first met, we were working, um, our clients were the people planting the trees. So government agencies and NGOs who were planting trees, and we were offering technologies to help ensure better survival outcomes. What we are doing now is we are funded by um, uh, global corporates who are seeking to have, who have net zero strategies or want to be nature positive. And our previous clients, the governments and NGOs, are now our partners on the ground. So we have disaggregated the funding from the operations so that the operations can be optimized for what you need to do for nature and aren't dependent on grant funding or um, uh, you know, typical government funding where it has to be spent by July and government agencies are then planting trees in July when nobody should be planting trees. We really wanted to optimize the operations for nature and then have the sales cycle be separate from that so that they didn't create conflicts of interest with each other. Where is the, I want to get back to you in just a minute, but um, you know, the, what the company does is, is fascinating and that there there's gotta be so many issues at play that a lay person would have no exposure to. So for example, how do you decide or consult uh, what type of land area has the best chance of success for your technology? Yeah. So this is where our tech development comes in. We used to, yeah, you'd have to visit <laughs> and you'd have to, you'd have to, um, you'd have to speak with people, you'd have to survey the land and you know, all of these breakthroughs in remote sensing have allowed us to develop our own remote sensing dashboard where we can look at, you know, um, uh, land uh, gradients on a slope. Um, we can see what the whole plantable area is uh, without actually having to visit the site first. So we screen, we're able to screen a lot more area and determine that optimal level of success by looking at a number of filters, not only the, the gradient of the land, but also climate conditions, both current or past current and future. Um, see what's currently growing uh, on that landscape, what should be growing on that landscape. And we can do so much of that work now through the development of these, um, of our remote sensing dashboard. And then we go to the field and this is where I think, um, you know, land life is, is unique in that we combine uh, the tech and the data with actual ground truthing and scientific observation. Um, you go to the field, um, you, you take the soil samples, um, we core adjacent trees, for example, to see how previous trees in this area grew, how, you know, how long did it take, how much CO2 did that tree sequester, as it was growing um, by looking at literally the, the core of that uh, tree and the life of that tree. And then we combine those two, those two elements, both uh, the data that we can gather from satellite with the, the ground truthing and the science involved to understand and design the optimal blueprint for, for nature, what's gonna have the right success, what's gonna be resilient over time. So I'm, again, I'm going back to thinking about communities and network, but let's say, 
somebody decides that they're going to buy a plot of land in southern Portugal. Can't think of any reason why I uh, thought of that. I couldn't possibly be considering that myself. But um, <laughs> let's say somebody has a dream of buying this, you know, scrubby high desert plot of land in the south of Portugal with the dream of not necessarily restoring it to a previous state, because maybe it's always been this, but, uh, you know, put you know, a permaculture um, installation in there with the avocado trees and the fruit trees and the almond trees. Do you, do you have sort of criteria of what people, what you will allow to accept your services or if somebody just wants to make a beautiful garden out of, you know, high desert scrub, um, is this something you could help them with? I guess my question is how small of a project will you accept? Yeah. So we, um, one of the things that Landlife was founded on was a focus on scale because there are a lot of really excellent local, um, there's excellent local knowledge on how to replant or reforest on a, on a hectare by hectare basis. What's missing is that perspective. And this is why we work in multiple geographies of how to do this at scale. Um, so really taking much more of a landscape level approach. So, um, our uh, director of science, for example, if you ask him like, okay, what should we, what should we do here on this hundred hectare plot? He'll say, well, are you just planting this 100 hectares or next year are you planting another 100 hectares? And for how many years are you going to be planting? Because what you would do, how you would design that restoration project is really dependent on the, the scale and the time span that you're, you're talking about. And especially if you're doing things like connecting wildlife corridors, um, uh, or have that type of objective through your through your nature restoration efforts, um, because things matter depending on on what level of scale that you're that you're talking about. So we typically try to focus on hectares in the in the thousands. So if you are successful in securing a nice piece of land for yourself in the thousands of hectares <laughs> in the south <laughs> of Portugal, we would be happy to to support you. And um, obviously, but there, because there are really good other uh, providers out there who can do things on a much, on a much smaller scale. And part of our mission was, okay, fantastic things are happening on the ground, but only on a small scale. How do we elevate it? How do we start to look more long-term, more landscape level to make sure that our designs are, are robust um, against, uh, you know, the long-term future that we're looking at? Because it's very different if you're thinking like, 10 years down the line and my small plot of land versus looking at an entire, you know, valley and area. How, the choices yeah, so that you would make. How, how far into the, how far into the future is, the, when does this investment pay off? Um, when do we start to see the environmental benefits of a land life project? Yeah. So I really think it depends on the lens. I would say immediately, um, you know, first of all, you're putting roots in, in soils, which helps stabilize the ground. And I think that erosion is um, a massive risk globally uh, with the, you know, 2 billion hectares of degraded land. Um, erosion can cause all sorts of, uh, all sorts of catastrophe. Um, and, you know, even relates back to food production as we were talking about it, right? Uh, soils, soils that aren't stabilized just kind of blow off into the wind, they blow into the water, you have sediment issues. So I would say even by virtue of just putting that tree in the ground, you're already having an incredible environmental impact, let alone what's happening 
with um, all the mycorrhizal fungi on the roots of that tree and what it's trying to stimulate nutrient wise uh, in the uh, in the soil. It's not observable, <laughs> but it is uh, it is happening. And that's what's so cool about you know, adjacent kind of nature tech companies popping up is now we can take soil, you know, it's called eDNA, environmental DNA. So we can assess, all right, here's the health of the soil today. Here's the health of the soil a year after planting, five years after planting, et cetera. Um, so you can really start to track change and impact over time in ways that we couldn't when we, when we started the company 10 years ago. So that, that is like super cool. And I get really excited about soil eDNA. So the impact is immediate. And then I would also say just the process of restoration connects, you know, people and nature in really critical ways. Um, so, you know, the stimulation of the nurseries, um, of the, the contractors that need to, to work on these plots, this is all, and the bigger that we get and that our projects get, we are now starting to be able to plan three years in advance with our contractors, um, which means you're lining up work for three years, which allows people to make their own investments in their business. Um, you know, that's the real challenge with nurseries. They never know how many people are going to need how many trees in a given year. And do they over or under invest in seed collection that year? And it's very hard for them to guess and to get it right. And I think what's exciting about this whole sector growing is um, we're able to start stimulating each other's businesses. Um, and so it's, it's great that a corporate wants to invest in our, in our projects, but what makes me most excited is when I become a client or someone becomes a client of ours in the same, in the same sector. Amazing. Um, Rebecca, I've got three more topics that I want to discuss with you in case um, you're starting to look at your watch. Uh, do, you, do you have it in you? Um, I do, another? I do. Okay, okay, great. Uh, you just touched on it a little bit, but the idea of new industries, new businesses, new opportunities that create new jobs and not just new jobs for people who want a job, but new types of jobs that maybe haven't ever existed before. Um, talk to me about what what level of priority that is um, in your world as a CEO of a sustainable company. Yeah. So for me, it's a it's a huge priority and an immense source of, of pride um, that we hire resilience engineers, uh, we hire marketing managers, and we do that in the name of restoring nature on degraded landscapes and serving communities um, who benefit from that nature restoration. So what I also love is that because this isn't a, um, a sector with a deep history, like you know, a lot of the people that we hire the first time in their role, um, uh, the first time they come from different sectors, which has brought just such a massive influx of new ideas and energy, I think, into a growing sector. So for example, uh, one of our business development managers, she used to sell software, right? Um, that's very different than selling nature, but it's also very similar. And she's so much more motivated in the product that she believes in and that she's selling. And that makes her all the more successful in, in doing so. Um, and so I think that we're giving uh, and developing careers that um, people are proud of, that they find meaning in, that require skill. 
Um, you know, these are these are highly skilled jobs. For example, even out in the field, um, we worked with retro spiders uh, because that's what you need, the type of equipment you need on a on a hill with a steep slope. Um, those are sophisticated CAD operators who who can um, who can operate a retro spider. I mean, we've at some point in Spain, you know, rented or used or contracted all of the all of the retro spiders in in northern Spain, um, and that's creating that's creating incomes for people. And I think people are generally very proud of the work that they're doing when they're outside and they're working in nature and they can see the impact that it's having. Purpose-driven is so critical, whether it's highly skilled people, you know, like the software engineer that you mentioned, I get this weekly people coming to me from all aspects. Well, not all aspects of life, but mostly from the tech world saying, you know, I just really want to do something purposeful with my life. And they're seeking, trying to figure out how they can, take their, you know, 20 years of, of whatever career that they were in and, and apply it to something yeah. that's actually meaningful yeah. to them. But then also on the sort of the opposite end of that spectrum are highly teachable skills. So I'll go back to, you know, the Ukrainian women that I was mentioning that are, you know, running our processes up in Poland. I mean, there's nothing fancy about it. I could say it's reusables as a service, but we wash dishes for a living. Mm-hmm. And so you could be a dishwasher or you can be part of the dishwashing process, knowing that what you're doing is saving the world from hundreds of millions of pieces of disposable food packaging pollution. And that everything, even, even at that moment, because it's a new industry, there's so much opportunity for upward mobility and the operations aspect of what we do. It's a whole career path. It's a whole career path. I mean, my favorite part is when one of uh, our employees comes to me or someone else and says, you know, I have an idea for what I could do next. And they are mapping out a role. They are mapping out a career path. It is coming from them intrinsically because of what they're motivated by, but also the opportunity that they see. And that's what's so exciting about being in a new sector is it's okay, draw it out, you know, show us, show us what this would look like and how, who you would work with and what that brings and contributes to our, our company. And there's no lack of opportunity for that. And I love sitting down with people and having those conversations um, because, yeah, I think, you know, you shouldn't always have to have a red thread to your, to your career and your life, or it doesn't have to be as um, maybe as obvious as it had to be in the past. And, and the, the strongest red thread is what comes from you inside and how you're intrinsically motivated and to work in a space where there's ample room for people to do that. And the entrenched interests are, have not been able to move in and dictate the rules of the game. It's, uh, I find it really invigorating and really empowering. It's the favorite, it's my favorite part of my job when somebody who's, you know, doing the work comes to me and says, you know how we could do this a little bit better? And and when I get to say, yes, that's awesome, do it, amazing idea. And not because it feels good to let them feel validated in their idea or that they had the courage to speak up, but also as a CEO and founder, I put something out into the world that somebody else thought about. And to me, that's like the highest compliment that I could receive is yeah. that they, you know, that they gave me some of their attention and consideration that's of this really thing nice that I put out there. It. I love yeah. it. Okay. Um, so I want to get your thoughts on the concept of restoration versus repurpose. And this mm. is, this is a, 
I don't know, silly and ridiculous theoretical example, but however long ago it was, like 10,000 years where everybody's changing their mind about this, but supposedly the Sahara Desert was once a lush tropical yeah. area. <laughs> yeah. So, so my question would be, one, can you plant trees in the sand? And two, how how far back does the does the does the topography have to have been changed where we decide we're going to quote unquote restore it? And then I'm also thinking about the versus repurpose part. I could imagine an instance where somebody would say, "Well, there's this giant forest fire in the south of France or in Spain or in Australia. We just torched, you know, a million acres. Let's just uh, cover it with solar panels." Like, yeah. Who who is that something that actually happens or? Restoration versus repurpose. What do you yeah, think about it? It yeah. is, um, the, especially the restoration part is something we have endless debates about because mm. hypothetically restore means to bring back. And on one hand, we are bringing back to nature that on land that has been farmed for, you know, say a couple hundred years or, or what have you. Um, but we're certainly not bringing back the exact nature that was there beforehand. Um, so we have, in, it's repurposing, right? On on some level, right? This, it was nature. It then was used to um, to cultivate crops uh, and, and feed people around the world. And now it has, in most cases, been abandoned or isn't being used anymore. And there's a real risk to keeping land in that state, uh, as I mentioned, erosion and, um, uh also monocultures that are often planted on those types of landscapes are risk of wildfire and disease so we're giving this land a second or for fifth or probably 125th life right so on some level it's repurposing um but i think we use the word restore to um connote that need to bring more nature back into our lives and into our ecosystems in order to have healthy and functioning ecosystems. It's not so easy as uh, I, this used to be a fork and now I'm gonna use it as a hairbrush. Um, you know, no damage is caused by repurposing, but the concept I think around restoration is that this is, um, we need to make something whole. We need to, to bring back elements that have been lost. And, and this really gets to kind of the biodiversity crisis in the globe about species loss. Um, that's happening at a rate that could, you know, be catastrophic for all of our ecosystems. So on some level we're repurposing and I, I, I could really understand describing it that way, but I think we would miss um, the messaging in there that we need to bring something back that is critical to us. Um, and it's not just as easy as switching its purpose. Um, there's something inherent in its value that has been lost that we need to restore. Mm. I love how you described that because I've had discussions where, and again, it's it's somewhat just um, a you know a thought exercise or uh, um, theoretical, but that it is impossible to extrapolate human beings from nature because we are of nature. Therefore, all of the damage that we do to nature is natural. Um. Sure, fine, but that doesn't really get us anywhere. So then you might might want to say, well, it's all in, um, in the service of self preservation of the human species. Fine, yeah. good. Again, 
I don't think that that I don't think that that allows us to realize our our full potential with our giant brains and our ability to to wonder and appreciate beauty and a, a desire to protect as well as a desire to destroy that also can fall in and out of balance. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then because we could just decide to do it. And if we decide in favor of of justice and respect for the marvelous other creatures on this planet, it doesn't have to be so poetic or woo-woo. To me, it just seems very practical. Wouldn't we all rather live in a beautiful world yeah. where most of the pe- most of the creatures in this world had a chance to like live out its life, you know, reasonably? <laughs> um, end of story. It doesn't have to be such a big drama, you know, I don't think. An existential yeah. drama. Um, but I, I or will it's say, certainly yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. framing things as an existential drama doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't in terms get you of anywhere. Action. And no. it isn't. <laughs> I do believe it is actually existential in terms of the the risks that we're facing, but that is not the selling point. Um, and I think that that, to your point, the selling point is really about how do we want to live our lives and what do we want to be surrounded by and inspired by? And Hey, this is also pretty important to the functioning of our society and our economy, but without that like doom and gloom and we're all going to die and go extinct unless we fix this, that never, in my experience, that never convinces anyone um, to take the appropriate action. No, because the people who are actually experiencing the doom and gloom aren't in a position to do anything about it. And the people who are, have never had anybody knocking on their door asking if they have a spare room because they're just they're escaping, you know, a, an oppressive regime. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that and let's be honest, you know, that's that's the moment when people really take action and really take to the streets is when they personally might be, I don't know, facing a draft into the Vietnam yeah. War or something. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, like you said, it all goes back to human nature. Okay. Now, final topic that I would like to speak with you about Rebecca is how do you see yourself as a female CEO? <laughs> is this something that's important to you? You don't really think about it? You know, yeah. just open question. It's such an interesting topic. And one I think I will continue to explore and grapple with. When I became CEO of Land Life, I was speaking to the company and I said, um, you know, I'm really honored to be Landlife CEO, and I'm also really honored to be Landlife's first female CEO. And as you can imagine, I put a lot of thought into whether I would highlight that or not, because on some level, we work so hard to just have the same title and the same treatment in terms like equality is to be treated the same, right? So then, do I want to highlight? Do I want to highlight those those differences by calling attention to the fact that I'm female? No, hypothetically, I've made it, right? So CEO, it doesn't matter what my gender is, like I'm a competent individual who has reached a certain position in life. But at the same time, I do really believe that firsts matter and that role modeling matters. And um, it's not always straightforward, I think, my path to this role. Um, and I think there, you know, I always, I always joke, like I'm a, I'm a really smiley person and I have had people in my life tell me that that is not gravitas. And that is because they're used to a voice being lower and a jaw being set in a certain way and a tone of voice that is different than mine because of literally how I am built and the personality that I have. 
and how that was interpreted was not as leaderly and with the gravitas that is needed of a senior leader because I like to smile and I like to make jokes. Um, and, you know, it's important to keep because my first is also gonna help pave the way for somebody else's first. And whether it is you or the, I don't know, it, everyone has their own first. And so I wanted to recognize it because I think I've spent a lot of my career trying to not recognize it. Um, and it was only till um, I became more and more senior that um, some of those old adages become really true. You're like, oh, glass ceiling. Like, I get it. I get that because they, you can't see it. <laughs> right earlier in your career like you're given all of these opportunities um you don't feel the you don't feel anything about your gender at least I didn't um but you know as I took on more senior roles or um for example had clients I had uh I had um someone more senior than me say um oh she doesn't she's not senior enough she, there's no way she would have a budget to approve uh, what you're asking her to approve. And I, I had this feeling that he, he just associated it with her um, being a female and not having enough seniority and authority in her organization to, to make those decisions. And so it's so subtle, right? Like no one is running around sexism, like no one's running around pinching my ass in my career or saying horrible derogatory comments. But there are differences, I think, in terms of how we perceive leadership. And if you are used to a historical version of what leadership looks like, it is not what I look like. And it is not how I behave or how I act. And so I think it's natural. I don't blame anyone to then question whether I can be a leader if I don't look and act and sound the way that leadership has always been uh, portrayed to you. Right. And that's why diversity is so incredibly important because you grow up looking at certain models. And then when something shows up that doesn't fit that model, it is naturally confusing. And I'm, I'm trying to put it in the most neutral terms as possible because I'm trying to understand why, why someone would think that I'm not leaderly or I don't have the gravitas required for a, for a role. So I thought about it a lot, but I did make that point that I do feel really honored to be Land Life's first female CEO because yeah, it's a first in our it's a first in our company. And I think what's really interesting is I work with a lot of women, a lot of very senior women. And I think that it is partly because this is a new sector, some of those ceilings weren't there. And it created a space for new people who have been growing up professionally to step into roles that might have not been available to them otherwise, because it's not a sector that has been existed for forever and then has the typical interests and model of what leadership looks like in that space. You've just so beautifully articulated one of the main reasons why I started this podcast is because the stories behind the gender, I think also really, really help, or I hope that's my goal, normalize the woman CEO. Um, it, one of the things um, that I think also is a risk is that many of the, the female leaders that I come across are in sustainability. And I feel like it's almost a risk because 
once again, we're sort of being measured against a standard that was created by men for men. And so the tech industry was great for geeky guys, you know, it emancipated the geeky guys and made them more yeah. fabulously wealthy than any superstar, <laughs> you know, rock star or athlete you could ever imagine. But now yeah. what's happening is that at least I've experienced this, all the funding or all the attention or all the accolades are going to women in tech. And I'm like, okay, definitely a deficit in STEM and female leadership for sure. But what's not being looked at or given equal attention or funding are areas where women are not playing catch up, but are leading the way. And that's in a sustainability. And so I'm already starting to feel that eye rolling resistance, like, oh, you're a female CEO. Let me guess you're in sustainability and impact. I'm like, yes. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Don't, don't roll. Don't dismiss it like that. And then I realized we have to do exactly what the geeky guys did. We have to build our own culture and our own terms and our own way and our own time. And if it's going to be in like saving the planet, I can't think of a better application of, you know, feminine energy and leadership. Um, And by the way, I don't think that you're particularly girly or smiley. You seem like a very (laughs) natural, relaxed and confident CEO to me. Um, I actually get the opposite criticism where um, I get the bitchy resting face accusation. Um, I don't smile enough. But I have to say as much as that used to annoy me, it's true. I have massive bitchy resting face. So it isn't just like, you know, asking a woman to smile, like this individual woman probably should smile a little bit more. But um, yeah, I think that that I, I, I think that the way you've been able to contextualize that for yourself is is really comforting, um, encouraging. And, um, and I just loved this conversation, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. I know I asked of a lot of it. Um, no, I really enjoyed it too. Thank you so good, much. Good, good. It's really nice to reflect on <laughs> from family history to my current role. It, it's been quite uh, thought provoking. I'm so happy. And I will just give you like one piece of advice that you probably don't need as a female CEO. If anybody asks you to be on a panel, you have to ask, you have to ask them why. If they want you, great. If they want you because of yeah, your gender, yeah. they got to pay. <laughs> So uh, that is I, true. They gotta pay. I don't. I don't prostitute my chromosomes out anymore. So, or I actually I do. Um, but yeah, anyway, but all right for a price. For, for a, a price. price. <laughs> yeah, you get my my. You know, my chromosomes gonna cost you. All right, um, my dear. Have a have a great conversation. Go back to your kids and um, thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate okay. it. Take care. Bye bye.